This week we're going to finish our little detour from the book of Acts, and we've been just taking a little, it's a short mini-series, two-part series, that arose when we saw in Acts how Jesus commanded the disciples not to leave Jerusalem. So that was a big deal, don't leave Jerusalem. And then there was another thing that we saw that it was necessary that the number of disciples be brought from 11 back to 12. So what's going on there? Don't leave Jerusalem. And Peter says, it's necessary we get 12 disciples before Pentecost can happen. Pentecost and the pouring out of the Spirit is dependent upon, number one, the disciples need to be in Jerusalem, not dependent in one sense, but they've got to be in Jerusalem. And there needs to be 12 first before this happens. And so what we see in that, and I hope you're seeing it now, I hope it's just become clear as day to us, that there's this continuity, there's this connection between the Old Covenant 12 tribes of Israel, which were centered in Jerusalem, and now a New Covenant community, a New Covenant Israel, founded on the witness of the 12 apostles which will expand outward now from Jerusalem to all the nations of the earth. So that right there in that little paragraph sentence thing, we just kind of encapsulated what's going on in Acts. So in Revelation chapter 7, we, this is where we went off a little bit. In Revelation 7, John hears an angel telling the number of those who've been sealed, 144,000. Now that number has a pleasant ring in our ears, doesn't it? And it will have even more so after this morning, I pray. 144,000 from every tribe of the sons of Israel, 12 times 12,000. Okay, but when John looks, he hears the number, but when he looks, what he sees is not... 144,000, but a great multitude which no one can count from not the sons of Israel only, but from every nation, including the sons of Israel, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues. You see, brothers and sisters, this, this sudden blowing up, in the best sense of that word, of the plans of God for the redemption of his elect. The 144,000 from every tribe of the sons of Israel, represent the complete number. So that's, that's like, when we say 144,000, you know, on the one hand, you've got this numberless multitude that no one can count. And yet, and yet God can count it, okay? And that's the point of 144,000, is there's, a, there's the complete number of this which God knows, and which we know that not a single one of those will be overlooked (laughs) on the final day as God gathers in the wheat into his barn, right? So uh, this is is what we're seeing in the 144,000. And by the way, we know that even the old covenant saints are now included in this 144,000. It says in Hebrews that we have the, the spirits of the just made perfect have come to this heavenly Mount Zion. That's the Old Testament saints. They've all come to the same people that now we have come to be part of. So the the great thing about the cross and the resurrection of Jesus and the pouring out of the Spirit is, is that it reaches backward and takes all those believing saints of the Old Covenant and it now gathers them in too into this New Covenant community. Last week, we saw that the 144,000 are sealed. We saw that it is only the 144,000 who are preserved safely through all trials, through all tribulations, through all sufferings, and ultimately through the final day of God's wrath. Brothers and sisters, we are invincible. Not we in ourselves, of course, but we who have the, the mark, the, the seal, the name of the Lamb and of his Father on our foreheads, nothing, nothing can touch us, right? This is what we looked at last week. 
It is only the 144,000 who are bond slaves of God and who have the name of the Lamb and of his Father written on their forehead. Everyone else has received the name of the beast or the number of his name. Okay. So it is only the 144,000. Therefore, we know that no one can snatch us out of our Father's hand. We know that. And, you know, the Bible finds all sorts of ways to tell us that. Jesus said it. No one can snatch you out of my Father's hand. Um, now, we have it said again, but with a picture of, of 104,000 people with, with this seal on their foreheads. It's another way of telling us, you're safe. You're secure. God will do it. Last week, we saw that the 144,000 are purchased in your handout. And once again, it's important to remember how many total are purchased. 144,000, not a single one more. And not a single one less. In, in the context of the vision, they, they encapsulate the entire number. There's no one else purchased from the earth. No one else but the 144,000. It is only they who can learn to sing the new song of redemption. Because they're the only ones who have known what it is to be redeemed. Since we, brothers and sisters, have been purchased with a price. You know, you, you think about that. We are, we are slaves of God. We are bond slaves of God. And so we have been, we have been purchased as his property. Therefore, we do not belong to ourselves, as the Apostle Paul says. We belong to him. Therefore, we ought to glorify God in our body, because we are not our own. The 144,000 are sealed, we saw last week. They are purchased, we saw last week. And now this week, we're going to see they are undefiled. So John continues in verse 4. These are the ones who are not defiled with women. This is going to, I, I trust, open our eyes into how we interpret visionary apocalyptic language. So let's just, when we get to something like this, you kind of have to step back, step back, and you have to say, well, what do I know from Scripture? Because the Scripture is a cohesive whole. It doesn't contradict itself. So let's just point out, women are no more defiling than men are. Men are just as defiling as women are in terms of male-female. Men and women together are God's good creation, right? It was not good for the man to be alone, so he created him a woman. The church, how is the church pictured in this very book of Revelation? The church is pictured as a woman. The church as a woman, not as a man, as a woman. The wife of the lamb. Okay. So then we ask ourselves this question. Does God seal only men? Does God only seal men? I'm inviting you to ask yourself this question. Is it only men who are sealed? Is it only men who are able to stand on the great day of God's wrath? All the women are going to be burned up and destroyed? The great day of God's wrath? Uh, Is it only men who are bond slaves of God? He said, seal the bond slaves of God in their forehead. Implication, don't leave a single one of my bond slaves out. Well, I guess no, there's no women bond slaves. Right? Again, this is, I say these things because as 21st century Americans, Western, we don't have a clue how to read apocalyptic. And this is why we have so abused the book of Revelation. As well as, as, well as a lot of other apocalyptic portions of scripture, which we're looking at in Sunday school in Zechariah. So we would have to say that there are only male bond slaves and no female bond slaves. Is it only men who can learn to sing the new song of the redeemed? Now then, here's the question. I think you all answered no to those questions, pretty sure. If the 144,000 represent the complete, the complete number of God's elect, then why do we have the imagery of 144,000 men who have not been defiled with women? Why? We're going to take a little course here. And this is, I love being at this church because 
This is, I, I believe you want to hear this. You don't want me just to tell you this is what it means. Okay, Timothy said that's what it means. You know, I trust you would, not, you would not do that. You would not take that. So we're going to look at this and, and learn how do we read this stuff. Okay, first of all, this is the imagery of a census. Now, when I say imagery, I'm speaking of visionary imagery. Sometimes when we think of these apocalyptic visions that John had, that Zechariah had, but let's just stick with John. We have this idea that John is watching a video recording of the future ahead of time. This is almost how we approach it, that, that God, in the way only God could, he had all the equipment set up, as it were, and he, and he recorded scenes. And then he, and then he played back those recordings of the scenes for John, and then John wrote it down. That is not what apocalyptic visionary imagery does or is. What, what this imagery is, is God, God shows scenes fraught with meaning, with symbols, scenes that, that represent future literal realities. So these scenes represent realities that are to come, realities that are deep, that are theological, that are full of truth, that are full of meaning to us today, right? And not just the future, but present. There are scenes that represent realities in the present, as we see here in this one. So this is what we need to see. We're not watching a video recording. But, but we're, John, and through Jesus, is trying to, Jesus through John, is trying to communicate truth to us life-changing truth. And when we fail to read the scriptures like that, we're, we're being dishonoring to the word of God. And perhaps nothing has been more dishonoring to the word of God than the way Revelation has often been read. Um, in the Old Testament, then, this is the imagery of a census. Okay, coming back to where I was. In the Old Testament, a census always counted the males, whether they were being counted as warriors or whether they were representative heads of households. Um, and this is another thing we need to see, is that what John did in Revelation is he was constantly reaching back into the Old Testament and taking images that everyone would understand and then transplanting those images into an apocalyptic context. So he would take images that people could say, yeah, I get that, and then put it as they knew, because they knew apocalyptic literature. There were other apocalyptic literature besides even the ones we have in, in the Bible. He would transplant those images into this apocalyptic context because this is the vision he saw. This is how God was revealing these things to him. And so God is now using the imagery of an Old Testament census. And we know that based on the imagery, it's a male. So the male imagery is part of the census imagery. And we, we know census because in Revelation 7, he, he actually spells it out. 12,000 from the tribe of uh, Judah, 12,000 from the tribe of Dan, or not Dan, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon and Naphtali and Zebulun and all the, all the tribes. Okay, so that's why, that's one reason it's got to be males, because of the imagery of the census. But still, what about this specific imagery of men not defiled with women? What does that mean? Okay, a man may seduce a woman. Generally, he does not seduce her by his sexual charms. So if we're going to talk about a man seducing a woman, it's in other ways, usually. But it's this element of seduction that we see so often in the Old Testament. And I was a little hesitant. I tried to word this carefully. I'm trying to be careful. But the Bible talks about this. It uses this imagery far more explicitly than I'm going to do now. So this is imagery we see in the Old Testament. This explains in part why in Scripture... We generally have warnings to men about women. What I, what, what I mean by women here is prostitutes and adulteresses. Rather than warnings to women about men. Now, there are also warnings to men about lusting after a woman, whether or not she's, she's an adulteress or a prostitute or not. 
right? So, so the Bible warns men about men. <laughs> That's kind of how it works. The Bible warns men about men, and the Bible warns men about women, right? In this, in this context. So we think of the father in Proverbs, who warns his son not to desire the beauty of the foreign woman, or to be captured with her eyelids. Certainly you don't warn your daughter not to be captured with the eyelids of man, right? In Ezekiel, Israel is pictured as a harlot who seduces. Men do not seduce in in terms of how we use that word in a biblical context. Israel is a harlot who seduces the surrounding nations to commit sexual immorality with her. Now, here in Revelation, now what am I doing, brothers and sisters? What am I doing? I'm looking at context. So we started with Old Testament context. Now we're going to look at context in Revelation. What is Revel- Where else do we see this idea of women in Revelation? Revelation chapter 2, and this is important because it's in the letters to the churches. So when Jesus gives these letters to the churches, it sets the context for the rest of the book. Okay? So this is really fundamental. Revelation 2, but I have a few things against you, Jesus says to the church in Pergamum, that you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols, notice idolatry, and to commit sexual immorality. And if you go back and look, it's specifically with the daughters of Moab. Now, there's a connection here between sexual immorality and idolatry. The Bible uses sexual immorality as a picture of idolatry, of leaving our loyalty to God and compromising with the world. So that's what's happening here in Revelation 2. Are are there men in the church who are literally committing sexual immorality? That's certainly possible. But it's more than that. It's eating things sacrificed to idols. It's an idolatrous compromise with the world. Now, even more important is this next one. Jesus says to the church in Thyatira, and this is really, really important. I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman, Jezebel. Now, I can assure you, there was no woman named Jezebel in the church. It's a symbolic name, and we know that. If you go back and you read about Jezebel, it talks about her, quote, her harlotries and her sorceries. Okay. This woman, Jezebel, in the church at Thyatira, calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and deceives my bond slaves so that they commit sexual immorality with her. Now, the question is, really, were there multiple men, were there a whole bunch of men in the church in Thyatira who were all committing sexual immorality with this one woman? You could say, well, maybe, but there's no reason in the world to believe that. Jezebel is a symbolic name, and we're going to see here in a moment, look what's the next thing it says. They commit sexual immorality with her and eat things sacrificed to idols. So the picture here, whether it includes literal sexual immorality or not, is is a compromise with the world, is a being stained by the world. Jesus says, I gave her, I gave Jezebel time to repent. She does not wish to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her, so apparently like she was the one like to go to, right? If we interpret it literally, all these men in the church, that's where you go. Well, no, it was she was symbolizing this idolatrous compromise through association with idols. I will throw her into great tribulation unless they repent of what? Her deeds. So the men must not defile themselves with the deeds of this woman. And and that would extend even to the women. No one in the church should be defiling themselves with the deeds of this woman. We see this even more clearly when we come to Revelation chapter 17 and 18. 
the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with, quote, a woman. John saw a woman. The great harlot. And this harlot is a city full of blasphemous names and abominations of the earth. And God's people are called out of the harlot. Out of this city. So they will not participate in, quote, her sins. You say, well, it's our sin once we participate in it. Yes, but she's the one. It's her sins. And we must not participate in her sins so that we won't receive of her plagues. God's people must not defile themselves with this woman. They must not do it. And so in chapter 19, we see how God has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her sexual immorality and how he avenged the blood of his bond servants, bond slaves, shed by her hand. Now, that's a quote from 2 Kings chapter 9, where God says that he has avenged the blood of his bond slaves shed by Jezebel's hand. So remember Jezebel from Revelation 3? Now, when we come to the great harlot in Revelation 17, we have God uh, quoting from the passage about Jezebel. So in Revelation... There's this choice you have. This is the, this is the context of Revelation for at, for at the beginning and at the end. Here's the way it works. You either commit sexual immorality with the woman or you be persecuted by the woman. You are either committing sexual immorality with the harlot or you are among those who, to sum it up, to sum up the persecution, whose blood is being shed by the harlot. This is the picture in Revelation. And it's at all sorts of different levels. The harlot being a city, the woman Jezebel being, being a teaching uh, in the church, and there are those who would teach it in the church, represented by this figure of Jezebel. Um. So here in Revelation 14, now we come back to Revelation 14, when we have all this imagery, and we realize in in, in the 144,000, we know it's visionary imagery, we know it's apocalyptic genre, we've already looked at Revelation 14, and we know it cannot be a literal, exact 144,000 only, it means the complete number. Now we can understand that the nature of the imagery requires that we see 144,000 men who have not been defiled with women. If you're going to use this imagery, it has to be men not being defiled with women rather than women not being defiled with men. You don't talk about women being defiled with men. You talk about men being defiled with women. And I know that sounds... People could get mad at me for that. That's the way it is here. And it's not women, period, as a woman. It's women in terms of loose women. Um, prostitutes, adulteresses. That's the meaning. That's the point. And it's not excusing the men. right? So the 144,000 have not been defiled with the harlot. Now there's something beautiful. okay? And we come back to this. Well, they've not been defiled with the harlot. They have not partaken of her sins. Once again, it is important to see in your handout, it is, what's the word? It is only the 144,000 who have not been defiled with women. What does John say? These are the ones, these are the ones who have not been defiled with women. What does that mean? Everyone else, everyone else has been defiled with women. And so what we have here vividly pictured is the moral and the spiritual purity of all God's people. 
Jesus never intended this to be the idea of the moral and spiritual purity of an elite group of male Jews. But as we see in the, in the second half of chapter 7, of men and women from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues. Brothers and sisters, all of us are called to be among those not defiled with women, with prostitutes and adulteresses, with those who, with those who call for spiritual compromise with the world. All of us are called to be among those not defiled with the great harlot that calls us to compromise with her and if we will not, persecutes us. We are all called to this. We are in your handout called to remain unstained by any idolatrous partnership with the world. And so this picture is vivid imagery that is not meant to send you off on tangents with end time scenarios and all of that. This vivid picture is meant to call you to holy life. Jesus said to the church in Sardis, this is the only other place where this word is used in Revelation, but you have a few names who have not defiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. You know those few names? You know what number those few names were a part of? The 144,000. The question then is, will we walk with Jesus in white one day? And do we, in a sense, even now? But will we one day walk with Jesus in white? Because by grace alone and through faith alone, we are worthy. Because we have not defiled our garments. When I say we are worthy, I'm just quoting scripture. And you know what I mean by that. I I said by grace alone, through faith alone, we have a worthiness. The 144,000 are sealed, they are purchased, they are undefiled, and they are all virgins. These are the ones who are not defiled with women. For, and I believe the sense of it is, we could add the word indeed, for indeed, they are virgins. Okay, so step back and let's just do our research here. Number one, the ultimate point is not literal celibacy. Let me ask you again. Does God only seal celibate men? Is it only celibate men? who are going to stand on the great day of God's wrath. You see, this group is getting smaller and more elite all the time, right? If we, if we, if we kind of go the route that we tend to go, given our, men, our brains and how they work, because we think, honestly, brothers and sisters, this is in a... Honestly, we think that the way we think is like the biblical way of thinking, right? That, that's a problem. The Jews, as they read this, did not read Revelation with the mentality that we have today. Are we just more advanced than they are because they lived back in that day? No, we we need to learn from them and how they were reading Revelation, how they read these kinds of things, this apocalyptic literature. Is it only celibate men who are bond slaves of God, who have been purchased from the earth? Is it only celibate men who can sing the song of the redeemed? That's not the point. So question. If the 144,000 represent the complete number of all God's elect, then why the imagery of 144,000 virgins? Once once you get into the world of just looking at this and saying, I want to be them. I want to be them. Well, why would you want to be a virgin following the Lamb on Mount Zion? Why? Why? In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus speaks of those who have made themselves eunuchs. Of course, not literal castration, but literal celibacy for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So they've made themselves eunuchs, virgins, right? Those who, so for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Here in Revelation, 
We have the whole company of all God's redeemed represented to us under the image. The reality is quite literal, and the image is quite literal. But the the literal image finds its fulfillment in the literal reality. It's represented under the image of those who are all eunuchs for the sake of wholehearted, undistracted devotion to the Lamb. Now, John goes on to say in the very next words, he says, These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They can do that because they're unattached, right? Because they're wholly devoted to the Lamb, they just go wherever he goes. And, And who else follows the Lamb wherever he goes? Who else? No one. No one else. John says, these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Only the 144,000. No one else does. Once again, it's important to see that there is no one else who follows the Lamb. Only the 144,000. The 144,000 then, now, remember, remember John heard and then he saw? Let's remember what he saw. They represent the complete number of that great multitude which no one can count who serve God day and night in his sanctuary. How many, how many people serve God day and night in his sanctuary? A, a multitude no one can count. And he says, they follow the shepherd lamb as he guides them to springs of the water of life. How many, how many people follow the lamb wherever he goes? People from every nation, all tribes and tongues and peoples. The 144,000 represent the complete number of that innumerable multitude that follows the Lamb wherever he goes. John 10, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I mean, look, how does John identify? What's, what's so special about these 144,000? What's, what's the big deal about them? They follow Jesus. That's what's so special. That's what's the big deal. They follow Jesus. Well, do we follow Jesus? My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. He says in John chapter 12, if, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. How often will the servant be with Jesus where he is? All the time. He follows him wherever he goes. And so we are all meant to ask ourselves this question. I'm I'm trying to help us see the awesomeness of this visionary imagery. It, It is meant, brothers and sisters, to be food for your soul. Not fodder for your brain and all sorts of wild speculations. It is meant to be food for your soul. And it can be in such a powerful way powerful way so we're all meant to ask ourselves the question am i a member of the 144,000 virgins am i a eunuch as it were for the sake of undistracted devotion to the lamb now paul said the one who is married is distracted right so there is a sense in which that is a that is a reality But Paul also said, from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. And Paul said in Luke chapter 14, uh, Jesus said in Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be. My disciple. What is a disciple? Someone who follows. Follows Jesus. So if we would follow Jesus wherever he goes, we must be those who hate our own, our own wife, even our own life. And for you wives, your own husbands. For the sake of following him. And we know hate doesn't mean hate as we think of it. 
And one day, we know we will neither marry nor be given in marriage. But as sons of God, we will all be like angels in heaven, following the Lamb, wherever he goes. So the question to you is, even though in this life the path may still lead through suffering, it may still lead through, through tribulations, is it our joy as disciples to follow the Lamb wherever he goes? Is that, is that the path we're on? The picture of 144,000 virgins who follow the Lamb is not intended to look weird to us. I hope it doesn't look weird to you anymore. Because a lot of times we get there, oh, they're all men. Oh, they're all virgins. That's strange. That's interesting. It's not intended to evoke that response in you at all. Neither is it intended to produce in you a kind of relief. Well, well, that sounds great for the 144,000, but I'm kind of glad I'm not one of that number because that sounds a little, little extreme. Neither is it supposed to produce in us this, this complacent acceptance, like, well, I guess that's them. Well, I'm not them, so whatever. No, it is intended, this imagery is intended to make you want, want to be one of their number. And rejoice to know that you are. Therefore, because we follow him now, that's what we are as, follow, as Christians. We're followers of Jesus. Because we follow him now, that means one day we will stand among the complete number, the 144,000 on the heavenly Mount Zion, and we will follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And where will he go? Where will he take us to? Springs of the water of life. That's where we'll follow him to. Oh, it's so good. The 144,000 are sealed. They are purchased. They are undefiled. That's the negative perspective. They are virgins. That's the positive side. And they are first fruits. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God. And to the Lamb. I would invite you now to just meditate on that, right? Think about it. What is he saying now? Sometimes we're going to do just a little bit, little bit more here, okay? Because what's going on here? Sometimes the emphasis of first fruits is on the idea that there's more to come, right? This is the first fruits, there's more to come. If that's the case, it's important we get this. Then what comes later, what comes later is equally as holy as what comes first. Paul says if the, and this is in, in fact in Romans 11, which I would love, we should talk about that sometime, but we can't keep on this detour indefinitely. But he, he talks about if the lump of dough is holy, then the whole batch is holy. So, so taking the first fruits and giving it to God sanctifies the rest of the harvest to our use. But it's, it sets it apart as something that God has given to us. So if the 144,000 are the first of more to come, we need to picture more just like them. Meaning, what are the more to come going to be? They're going to not be defiled with women. They're all going to be virgins. And they're all going to be sealed and purchased from the earth. And they're all going to be able to learn the song of the redeemed. Because these are the first fruits, and there's a whole lot more just like them coming. We can never suppose, and this is one of the terrible things about some of the traditional interpretation, not traditional, no, no, um, some interpretations of the 144,000 redeemed, is that what you end up with, whether there's no way to avoid it, is, is a super elite group of super initiated people among God's children. But we know that God shows no favoritism. And in any case, 
The number 144,000 indicates in your handout completeness with the assumption there are no more to be added. So then what's the point of first fruits? Very often the emphasis of first fruits is not on the first of more to come, but on that which is set apart from the rest as choice and holy to God. So in the Old Testament, you have the first fruits of the harvest. They were consecrated to God for his special use, while the rest of the harvest was not consecrated to God for his special use. We read in Exodus 23, you shall bring the choice first fruits. Now, as we read these verses, think to yourself that we are the first fruits. And just, just, just be amazed. Just like, how can this be? You shall bring the choice first fruits of your ground into the house of Yahweh your God. Where, what, what happened to the rest of the fruits of the ground? They were not brought into Yahweh's house. They were left, they were not brought in. The firstborn son was also a kind of first fruits that was devoted to God for his special use. So we read in Exodus 22, you shall not delay the offering from the fullness of your harvest and the juice of your wine vat. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. No other sons were given to Yahweh in that sense. Not the second or thirdborn sons, just the firstborn son. Firstborn, when we hear firstborn, a lot of times we think, oh, there must be a secondborn. There must be a thirdborn. Not necessarily. In the Bible, firstborn is just a title of preeminence. It can often be that. Referring to someone specially chosen, someone set apart over and above whatever else is out there. So Ephesians, Exodus 4, and there's no thought of a secondborn. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. We're not meant to ask, oh, who's God's secondborn son? That's not, that's not intended. He is my firstborn. The, the sense of, of, of the, he is my heir. He is the one who, to whom the inheritance comes. Colossians chapter 1, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. There's no secondborn of all creation. Firstborn indicates preeminence, the heir of all the earth. The writer of Hebrews says that we who have believed, we are all part of the assembly of the firstborn. God has not divided his people into, here's the group of the firstborn, and then here, all of you are the group of the secondborn. We're all the firstborn because we're all heirs, equal heirs of eternal life enrolled in heaven. In the same way, first fruits can refer simply to that which is choice, that which is holy to God. Not because it's holy and choice in itself, but because God has set it apart as choice and holy to himself. There's no thought of more to come. Jeremiah chapter 2. Israel was holy to Yahweh. The first of his produce. All who ate of it became guilty. And then in the New Testament. In the exercise of his will, James says, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits. The choice and holy portion among his creatures. The 144,000 then are not the first fruits of the redeemed. With more redeemed to come, they are not purchased from among the redeemed, but from among men from the earth as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Do you see the power of the imagery? So the emphasis is on the fact that these are the ones as first fruits who are devoted to God and devoted to his use. There's not one group of people more devoted than another group of people that God has consecrated special 
This is a picture of all of us. God has purchased the 144,000 from out of the whole mass, the whole mass of rebellious, fallen, wicked humanity, so that they might be a choice and holy offering, consecrated, set apart to himself, so that, they might, so that he might bring them all into his house. We are the first fruits. Not by our own merits or qualities, but because God in his sovereign grace has marked us out, set us apart as holy. Which is what I say next. I don't know if this is in your handout. The emphasis in this case is not on our personal or practical holiness, which it kind of was when we talked about being undefiled and virgins. The emphasis here is on God's gracious choice to set us apart as a holy first fruits. And so once again, we see how this beautiful number represents this innumerable multitude, which no one can count, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, who are all crying out with a loud voice. What do first fruits cry out? When we realize, brothers and sisters, that we are first fruits, how can we not cry out? Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. That's what we do. Do we love, do you love to know that you've been chosen? Not just chosen, but chosen specifically that you might be a choice, a holy first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Hundred forty four thousand are sealed, they're purchased, they're undefiled, they're virgins, they're first fruits, and finally they are true and faithful. So John concludes And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Let me just point out finally one more time. The point of that description is not to make you say to yourself, Man, I wish I could be as good as they are. Wow, there's no lie found in their mouth? I wish the same could have been said of me. You might as well say you're a loser then. We're all losers. That's not the point. The point is to cause you to rejoice that you are, in fact, one of that number. How, How so? How can we say no lie is found in our mouth? Okay, well, you better be able to say that. Because, Revelation chapter 21, we are told that for all liars, their part is in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Later in the same chapter, we're told that no one who practices lying shall ever come into the new Jerusalem, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. In Revelation 22, John says that outside the city is everyone who loves and practices lying. Now, maybe you're saying to yourself, well, I don't love and practice it. But, I mean, these people, these guys, these, these male virgins here, they never lied ever. That's, that's not good exegesis. That's not the point. Let's, let's see here. The point is that it is, in your handout, only the 144,000. In whose mouth no lie is found... It is only they whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. There's no one else's name written in the Lamb's book of life but the 144,000, not a single more, not a single one less. It is only the 144,000 who will be granted entrance into the city of God on Mount Zion. Now, let's clarify one thing. To say that no lie was found in their mouth. There's a whole history, and I've got a lot of scriptures there, but there's a whole Old Testament picture for the lie and what that represents about the heart. So the point is not that these these male virgins never, ever, ever once told a lie. The point is that they were not false confessors of Christ, but true. Again, we go back to Jesus' words to the church now in Philadelphia. 
Behold, I am giving up those of the synagogue of Satan, ethnic Jews, those who say they are Jews, and thought they had every right to say they were Jews because they were actually biologically descended from Abraham, those who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, Jews and Gentiles alike in the church. And I will make them know that I have loved you, which is to say that I have chosen you. So who are the 144,000? Who are they? They are those, they were not those who claimed to be Jews and were not, but lied. None of those people are included in this number. Instead, as Paul says, they are those who were Jews inwardly. The lie means that your inward does not correspond with your outward confession. But the 144,000, the inward corresponds with their outward confession. They are Jews inwardly, whose circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, and whose praise is not from men, but from God. So when they confessed Christ, and this is the question for all of us, no lie was found in their mouth. When you confess Christ, does God find a lie in your mouth? Right? When I, when I confess Christ, as I really do every time I get up here and preach on Sunday, right? I'm confessing Christ publicly. But does Christ find a lie in my mouth? Instead, they have confessed Christ in your handout faithfully. And a big theme in Revelation is confessing him faithfully in the face of suffering and death. Therefore, as if to sum it all up, they are blameless. The point being, not that they never told a lie in their life, but that their life is consistent in its wholeness, in its inner consistency. It is complete. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless. The 144,000 before him in love. I cannot tell you, I have a hard time expressing how excited I am for all of us to potentially begin to have our hearts and minds opened to grasp the beauty, the nourishment for the soul that we are meant to find in the book of Revelation. So I'll ask then this question, by grace, through faith, are you one of their number? Let's just go back. It's going to be on this slide, every single one of these. I just want you to meditate. This is not to check the list off. This is to meditate with that question in mind. By grace through faith, am I one of their number? The 144,000 have been sealed so as to be preserved safely through all trials and tribulations and finally to stand in the day of God's wrath. The 144,000 are the bond slaves of God who have his name and the name of the Lamb written on their foreheads. The 144,000 have been purchased from the earth and now they sing the new song that only the redeemed can sing. The 144,000 have remained undefiled by the sexual immoralities of the harlot. They have kept themselves unstained by any idolatrous compromise with the world. They are virgins, all of them, for the sake of wholehearted, undistracted devotion to the Lamb. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. 
They have been purchased. The 144,000 have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Choice and holy. They have confessed Christ faithfully and sincerely with no lie in their mouth. They are blameless and complete in him. So this is the real deal. This is, you either are one of the 144,000 or you're not, right? It's not, it's not, there's not some other halfway group. There's not part-time membership. There's not a part kind of, I'm a member, kind of not. You're either in the 144,000 or you're not. And so I would ask us all this morning, have I been by grace alone through faith alone? alone included in this number. And that's why I had to do the number in the blank, because the number, the number is a glorious number. Brothers and sisters, well, if you're a brother and a sister, then you are one of this number. I invite you to spend the rest of your week reflecting on what that will mean for you. But we could say this. The result will be peace and joy and strength to persevere. The result of this will be confidence in your witness because we know that God is going to gather in the complete number of his elect and not one will be left out. And the result of this will be, and I'll leave us with this, a steadfast hope and assurance that one day we will stand with the Lamb, all of us, you and I together. We'll find each other, right? Because we'll be standing with the Lamb forever. On Mount Zion, clothed in white robes, with palm branches of victory in our hands, and we will all be crying out, with one another and with all the redeemed throughout all the ages, we will be crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God and to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. We will not hunger. We will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on us, nor any heat, for the lamb will shepherd us. And he will guide us to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from our eyes. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, truly you are our Father who is in heaven. We thank you, Lord, that that you have called us to be part of this number and Lord should there be anyone else and we we thank you this number represents a multitude no one can count and that you're still gathering them in should there be someone here today who has not repented of their sin and believed in Jesus I pray that you'd work in their hearts now to not, maybe maybe they've been deceiving themselves, maybe there's, but I, I just pray that there would be no lie found in anyone's mouth here. That we who say we are Jews truly would be, whose circumcision is of the heart, whose praise is not from men but from God. Pray, Lord, that we're among those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes as, as, as virgins standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion. That we're all among those who, by grace through faith alone, remain undefiled with women, undefiled with the, with the harlotries and the sorceries of Jezebel. That we're among those who have been sealed, who are assured that we will persevere faithfully to the end because you keep us.
You have marked us as your own. The evil one cannot touch us because the one who is born of God keeps us. Thank you, Lord. We give you praise and we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.